Good morning. It's good to be here. Kind of wish we could keep the song service going. It seemed to put my nerves at ease, but then Dad led that last song, and that kind of brought, made me a little bit emotional. And probably because of what I'm going to be talking about this morning, um, I spoke about a month ago, and what I talked about then was, was titled, Piecing Together Who Jesus Is. And what that topic was about was covering the different perspectives that each gospel gives into the life of Jesus. And we talked about the inclusions and the exclusions of certain details, the way that Jesus is referred to, his actions, his interactions in each gospel, and we compared and contrasted them, and we found out what those different perspectives was. The drawback to that lesson is we go over so much information, I didn't have enough time to cover specific application of that event. And I guess you could consider this a part two. What I want to talk about is piecing together the crucifixion. Because much like the Gospels have a different perspective throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that portrayed in the event of his death and the events leading up to that death. Now, when we did that last study, we discovered that the four perspectives were that of Jesus as the promised king, as the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the old prophecy and the old law to the people, to the Jewish people. We see that one perspective was that of a servant of Jesus in service to the Lord and that he was suffered because of that. We see Jesus in another account. He's portrayed as the Son of Man. And the emphasis there is we, he appeals a lot to the humanity of us and to the humanity of Christ. We see glimpses there, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then finally, we have Jesus being portrayed as the Son of God. And for those who were here, this will be a little bit of a refresher, but to those who weren't, this will be a kind of a recap to help understand the context of today's lesson. So we see in Matthew that he was the one that portrayed Jesus as the promised king. He was the one that portrayed him as the Messiah. Looking at the genealogy, it covers from Abraham all the way to Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. Establishing that he was of the bloodline of Abraham. He's referred to as a son of Abraham. And it also establishes that he's of the bloodline of David. Referring to him as son of David. But throughout the book, he's referred to as the son of David. Reinforcing that promise that was made. We see that he's worshipped by the people more in Matthew than he is being seen as worshipped in other accounts because of the authority that he has, the position that he's in. He's in the position of a king of this new kingdom that he came for. He's referred to as king in Matthew more than any other account show. And what's unique to Matthew's account of him being referred to as king is that it's one of the only ones besides John to mention him as king outside of, ter- of being referred to as king in mockery and out of derision. It was actually that he was referred to as king in reverence of that position of authority. It contains the most Old Testament quotes and references because this is to the Jewish people. He's the fulfillment of the old law and that had to be shown to the people that were familiar with it. It's the only gospel account to mention the church and that's important because this new kingdom he came for that he was the king for was the church which we are a part of today. And we see in Jesus' interactions with the people, especially when we consider his interactions with the scribes and Pharisees, his his tone is much more authoritative. Mark covers Jesus from the perspective of him as a suffering servant. We see there's no genealogy and actually there's no mention of his birth at all. And that's intentional. It's because when we look at Matthew, we consider that he had to establish the bloodline of Jesus the genealogy and the bloodline of a servant's not going to be relevant. There's no need for a genealogy in Mark's account because that's not the purpose he's showing. There are fewer parables mentioned in the book of Mark compared to Matthew and Luke. 
and the only two that are unique to Mark are service-related. Jesus as a teacher is a big focus of Mark, but it's not just teaching the general people or to the multitudes, it's the teaching that he gave to those who are closest to them. And we see a lot of emphasis on the shortcomings of those that he chose to follow him, and we'll talk about that later. Gospel, the term gospel is used more frequently in Mark than others because as a servant, he was the bearer of that good news. And because Mark is writing to the Gentiles, there's fewer Old Testament quotes and there's fewer Old Testament references because that's not his audience. He's not talking to people that are familiar with the Old Law and the Old Testament promises. Then we come to Luke, who portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. And we see in the genealogy goes past Abraham all the way to Adam, establishing that he's of the bloodline of the first man. And we see Luke emphasizes that he's not the Savior for just the Jews. He's not the Savior just for the Gentiles. He's a Savior for all mankind. It shows Jesus living perfectly in the flesh versus how we live. And we see that contrast put, to get, put up before us often throughout the reading in Luke of how anything, any example that Jesus gives of living in the flesh perfectly is a contrast to how we would do things or how we would tend to do things. We see the humanity most in Luke's account. We see emotions that are revealed in certain events of his life. We see ages specifically called out in Jesus's life. We see when he's 12 years old, he's already about his father's business. Nobody else mentions that story because it's trying to establish that Jesus lived as a human on this earth. We see that his age is mentioned when he begins his ministry for that very same reason, trying to reinforce that Jesus did live as a man. He lived on this earth as you and I do. The phrase, a certain man, is used far more in Luke's account than any other to establish it's not a certain people he came for, he came for all. And the state of man's soul being addressed in Luke is unique. We see the story of the thief repenting on the cross, and we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus, both talking about the state of their souls. And finally, we come to John, who talks about Jesus being God in the flesh and the Son of God. We see there is a genealogy. It's that he always was in the beginning. He was with God. They have a unity. We don't need to see that earthly lineage, but it's important to see that spiritual lineage that he and God are one and he always was. There's many unique aspects to John's account uh, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and oftentimes when you read of those events, it's revealed to be shown that the people would believe that he is the Son of God. There's no parables contained in John, and an easy way of thinking that is that is parables are God-concealed, but John is trying to show that Jesus is revealed here as God in the flesh, so parables don't serve his purpose. John 14, we see very many unique titles and names that not people call Jesus, but what he calls himself. He refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. We see that he refers to himself as the resurrection. We see that he refers to himself as the door to the sheep. All titles that reinforce that unity that he has with God, and there's many more that he calls himself in there. God's control over situations throughout John's account is very evident. For instance, when the leaders wanted to take Jesus captive and lead him away to die, they feared the multitudes in other accounts. They were scared of the perception. They were nervous about what the people would think, but here it's because his hour had not come, that God was in control. Raising Lazarus from the dead is unique to John as well, and we're seeing once again that that's revealed so that the people were there that would believe in him. And just in general, throughout John, we see the emphasis on the unity that Jesus and God share. And hopefully throughout this study, 
as we compare what's unique, what's excluded from certain aspects, and what is included in others, we'll be able to tell that his suffering is not portrayed or depicted in the same way in each account, that it's unique in certain aspects, and that we can appreciate each gospel for its purpose that it was inspired to be written for. I don't know about you, I have a favorite gospel account that I've always used. Whenever it's time for the Lord's Supper, I always go to Matthew. Matthew's narrative just seems to resonate with me more. That rejection moves me more from an emotional standpoint. And I've, in a lot of ways, discredited the other gospel accounts because they don't move me in the same way. But through this study, I've been able to understand why things are depicted the way they are. And hopefully you'll get that understanding too. And maybe you're not in the same position where you necessarily discredit those other gospel accounts, but you can learn to appreciate them more as I have. And ultimately, our goal is to make the death real. We have a memorial every week, and we're going to do that after I'm done speaking here of the Lord's Supper. We take time to remember that sacrifice, to remember the aspects of that sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood, and what needs to be real to us, because we do this every week. So we need to find a way for that story to connect with us. And Hopefully through seeing that the suffering of Jesus as the promised king is not being unique to the suffering servant and that the suffering of the Son of Man is not the same as the Son of God and piecing that all together, we can have a greater appreciation for what was done for us. Let's begin in Matthew, which is the crucifixion of the promised king and the Messiah. We're going to begin with the Passover and all of our timelines here because that's when an obvious shift happens to I guess what you would call it, everything kind of starts going downhill in a physical sense. And we see in Matthew 26, verse 25, Jesus reveals specifically to Judas that he is the betrayer. Other, another account does reveal uh, Judas to be the specific betrayer when Jesus is talking to his disciples, but Matthew's the only one to include mentioning it to Judas himself. And I think that's important to realize. But what's going on here is Jesus is actually talking to all of his disciples first. He says, one of you is about to betray me. So they all begin to ask the question, is it I? Now, I don't believe this is a sign of weakness in the disciples. I believe that this is a sign of humility, something that we can look to as an example that they wondered, you know, as haughty as we get about ourselves sometimes, as prideful as we get sometimes, and surely as they do, they wondered if they were capable of making this mistake. They wonder to themselves and to Jesus, could I be the one that's going to do this to you? And that's important that we see that humility there. But we also see something else unique. Judas asked the question. But if we read before, we know he's already made arrangements. He's already met with the leaders. And he's already accepted payment to betray the Son of God. And yet he's asking the question here. So that seems to imply that he's trying to cover himself up. He thinks he's going to get away with a fast one. And he's like, no one will ever know what I'm doing. So he asks the question just like everybody else is. And the way that Jesus responds calls my mind to the way uh, Nathan and David interact together. When David is committed his sin with Bathsheba and it's led to all these horrible chain of events and it's led to the murder of Uriah. And Nathan is giving him this scenario that is David and he sees it perfectly clear in that situation. He understands it because it's not him. But then Nathan reveals, you are that man. And I think this is very similar in how Jesus reveals that to him. You are this, this man that's going to do this to me. Now, another interesting thing is we don't see outrage. We don't see anybody grabbing hold of Judas. We don't see anybody trying to stop Judas, which is what I would expect. I think that's what we would expect as humans is these are the people closest to him. They don't want him to die. They don't want him to be betrayed. 
Why would they let him go out the door? But I think this reinforces the fact that is recorded in all of the gospel accounts throughout that the disciples did not understand what was coming. They didn't grasp the gravity of the situation. They didn't grasp that Jesus really was going to die because they're looking at this man, seeing everything that he's done, all the miracles, the times he's gotten away. They're thinking, how could he die? But we know that it did have to happen. And even if we saw the disciples take action and try to stop Judas, we know that the nature of God's plan is it was going to happen because that's what he decided had to happen. We see Jesus' tone of authority in the garden. Matthew 26, verse 40, he goes off to pray by himself and he comes back to Peter, James, and John. And he says, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Interesting here is that he doesn't, uh, when he rebukes him, it's from a position of authority. He has, as a king, has left an expectation for them that they watch. And then he comes back, he sees that they're sleeping, they're not meeting that expectation. And so the correction we see is in a position of authority that we don't see in other instances. After he's betrayed and they come to take him away, we have Peter pulling the sword and cutting off the high priest's servant ear. But there's unique responses in all of the events uh, as far as how they're recorded in each gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each give a different take. Matthew is a two-parter. But the unique part of it is found in Matthew 26, 52 through 54. He tells Peter to put his sword away for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But in the following verses, he's reinforcing the authority and the power that he has. He could have called legions of angels to save him, but he didn't. We know that he didn't exercise that. We talk about the wonderful sacrifice that he made. We just sang about it. Because we know that he chose to suffer that even though he could have stopped it at any time. And we see that he doesn't heal the servant. It's all about enforcing his authority on this earth. Judas's suicide is mentioned exclusively in Matthew. And we know that that's for the fulfillment of prophecy. We see he goes back and he returns the money because of the guilt and the remorse that he feels. And they buy land with it. And that's fulfilled in Matthew 27, 9 through 10. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, in verse 10, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, I think this is interesting that Matthew points this out, and I think there's two things we can pull from this. Yes, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was another proof of authenticity that Jesus was this promised king and Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the old law. But the remorse in Judas feels, I feel like we can pull away that if we're guilty of the blood of Jesus, we're going to have grief and we're going to have havoc in our life. Now, it may not manifest itself in the way that Judas handled it. He obviously handled it inappropriately. But if we don't take care of that in the right way, our souls can be in danger much like Judas's was. We see when he's before Pilate, Matthew's the only one to mention Pilate's wife at all. Matthew 27, verse 19, she's talking to Pilate here and says, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. This is interesting because this is an outsider. This is someone who has no interaction with Jesus, doesn't know anything about who he is and what he's about, but she knows, partly because of her suffering, which we don't know what she suffers, but we know in her suffering she recognizes there's something different about him. There's something different about this outsider, and it's uh, fitting that Matthew points that out. Matthew is unique in showing that Jesus, the specific choice of Jesus and Barabbas is offered twice. Matthew 27, 17 is the first time. This is uh, before his wife talks to him. And then Matthew uh, 27, verse 21 is after he's spoken with his wife. He offers the choice again. But that specific choice 
of this murder and rebel and the Son of God is offered twice. And I think that's to reinforce and emphasize the rejection by his own people that he had to suffer as this Messiah and as this promised king. Matthew's the only one to show Pilate attempting to appease his guilt here. We see in Matthew 27, 24 through 25, he tries to wash his hands and he tells the people, I am innocent of this blood. And in the ultimate sign of rejection, which is also unique, the people cry for Jesus' blood to be on them and to be on their offspring. See, in their minds as Jews, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't think he, he was who he said he was. He was someone to be rid of. He was blaspheming. Let's just be done with it. And who cares if we take on the blood of this guy that means nothing? But we know he was exactly who he claimed to be, and we know that that blood would mean a lot. And it was something that they weren't prepared for. Matthew offers the most evidence after Jesus breathes his last and he gives up the ghost. We see Matthew 27, 51 through 53, that the, tail of the, uh, the veil of the temple tears from top to bottom. There's an earthquake. The graves open and the dead arise. So once we factor in all those events and then we couple that with what he cries out before he dies, which was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's four evidences that Matthew gives while Mark and Luke only show two. Now that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a reference to a prophecy in Psalms chapter 22. What's going on here is this is an insight into what Jesus is experiencing as he's suffering for the people, as he's being paraded down the streets, as he's being humiliated. And that's what Matthew and Mark point out in Jesus' last words. Now to a crowd of people that are familiar with the old law, the Jews, they would recognize this. They would recognize this passage, understand that he's referring to a prophecy and a passage in the Old Testament, and that would resonate with them. That would be proof to them that maybe they were wrong, but then you couple it with all those events that happened, the veil tearing, the earthquake, and the graves. How could he not be who he said he was? Then we move on to Mark's account, and overall, Mark follows the same type of pattern and approach that Matthew does. But there's a few differences, starting off with the Passover. Judas is not revealed specifically in Jesus' interactions with uh, his disciples. Mark 14, verse 20, he just mentions it as one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. Now, Matthew, it's intentional for him to point out Judas. Because part of that prophecy and being rejected was he was going to be rejected and betrayed by one of his own. Not just his own people, but by one of those that he chose. That's not Mark's purpose. Jesus is a servant here. He doesn't need to call out Judas specifically. Now, when you look at perspectives of Mark's writings, you'll see that they depict it as Mark writing about Jesus as the suffering servant, that he wasn't just a servant. And so just to point out that he's going to suffer for being a servant, that this is almost his reward for his service is important to mention, but not necessarily to mention the specific person who was guilty of it. Peter is given a different warning in Mark. Now, it's the same warning. Yes, he's warned that he's going to deny Christ, but he's actually warned in Mark uniquely that the rooster is going to crow twice. Now, remember, a lot of Mark, Mark's emphasis is that he's teaching those who are closest to them. He's correcting those who are closest to him. So if you consider that, I think it makes sense that he's telling them, not only are you going to deny me before the rooster crows, you're going to hear that crow twice before you recognize it. You're not going to catch it the first time and you're still going to fail. You're still going to fall short. So we see that shortcoming and those closest to him 
emphasized here. And then when he's in the garden, we see a similar type event. Mark 14, 37 through 38. And then again in verse 41, we see that Jesus is praying. He returns to them three times and he rebukes them twice for falling asleep and not doing what he asked them to do. And that's once again emphasizing the shortcoming that they have because the other accounts only show once. But this was a big emphasis on Mark as he's teaching and correcting those that are closest to him, more so than the others show. We have the shortest response of Jesus after the servant's ears cut off by Peter. This response is actually found in both Matthew and Luke as well, but Matthew and Luke continue. And we already showed what Matthew's unique response is, but Mark stops here. And when you consider what he says here, it makes sense. Mark 14, 48 through 49 Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He's emphasizing his service, and that's where it stops. There's no healing. It's just about he is serving, and this is his reward for it. We have the shortest interaction in Mark that Jesus has with Pilate. We see in Mark 15, verse 15, that wanting to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas, and he delivers Jesus. Now, he gratifies the crowd. He wants to release Jesus because the, uh, he knows he's not guilty, but he appeases the people every time and delivers him to be crucified. But what's interesting here is we get less information into the state of mind of Pilate because he's a servant here. He's not crucifying the Son of God. He's not crucifying a king. He's crucifying a servant. So he's not going to be as bothered by that, even though he finds no guilt in him as he would be crucifying the promised king and is the son of God, which we see shows the most trouble in his mind. Mark shows the unique fulfillment of prophecy while Jesus is on the cross. Mark 15, verse 28, and he was numbered with the transgressors. When we consider the use of Mark's, uh, Mark's use of the Old Testament, most of the quotes, the vast majority of the quotes, are just in Jesus' words. There's only a handful of times, I believe three total, that he, in his own narrative, chooses to point out the fulfillment of prophecy. And so at first glance, you may think, oh, this is more fitting for Matthew, because that's what Matthew was all about, was fulfilling the old law and fulfilling the prophecies that, he, that were left for us in the old law. But when you read the full prophecy, I think we understand that it's fitting in Mark. Isaiah 53 and verse 12, before he was numbered with the transgressors, it says, because he poured out his soul unto death, emphasizing service. And isn't that the ultimate act of service that could be done is pouring out your life for others, especially for people that did not want you and rejected you and humiliated you and suspended you on the cross and still made fun of you? Of course it is. That's the ultimate act that could be done. Matthew and Mark both show that the veil of the temple tears after Jesus breathes his last. And I think that's fitting for both of their purposes. Now, when we think about what the veil of the temple tearing symbolizes, Behind that veil was where the high priest went and made atonement for the sins of the people. It was where the presence of God was. So that veil tearing symbolizes God's presence coming out to all. It symbolizes that the old law was to be done away with. The old way of doing things was to be done away with. And that there was a new way coming, which we would find after Jesus resurrected. But it's important for that to be placed there in both Matthew and Mark's instances because it had to be verified as proof to the people that he was addressing at the time that he was who he claimed to be. To the Jews that he was the Messiah and that he was to the... Now, Mark is written to the Gentiles, but it was still important 
that they see that the people that crucified him recognize that too, even for Mark's purposes. Luke shows it a little bit differently, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But to begin Luke's account, starting with the Passover, we see that humanity in Christ revealed. Before he partakes of the Passover in Luke, it reveals in Luke 22, verse 15, with a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So we see he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He knows everything that's coming for him. And in a very human way and in a very human draw and pull, he wants to be with those he's closest to in his final moments. Something we would expect a human to want in that moment. Luke is unique in showing this dispute about who is the greatest during this time. Now this dispute in and of itself is found in other accounts. And the response that Jesus gives is not that unique either. But the placement of it here is important. Luke 22 and verse 27 shows his response. And it talks about who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He's emphasizing that Jesus does everything perfectly and he's contrasting the way that God thinks of things and wants things done versus how we would want things done. Jesus is obviously the greater one here. He should have been the one that was being served, but instead he's serving them. So we see that contrast put before us in Luke's account from the get-go. Judas is once again not revealed specifically as the betrayer in Luke. And an additional detail is given before Peter is warned of his denial. We see in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So before he reveals this denial, this betrayal of, of sorts, he tells him he's concerned for him. So we're seeing that glimpse into Jesus' humanity once again. He's hurting for Peter. He's praying for Peter. He doesn't want him to fail, and he wants him to return to him so he can strengthen the others because that's what they're going to need. So we're seeing human emotion being revealed again. In the garden, Luke shows that an angel comes, and he strengthens him. Now, at first glance, I thought this was more fitting in John. John's about Jesus being the Son of God. So yes, an angel coming to aid the Son of God makes sense, but when you consider what the angel is doing here, it's strengthening him. Why? He's a human. He's in suffering. He's fearful. He's anxious because of everything that's going to come next. And so an angel coming to strengthen him is fitting for Luke's purpose. And then following in verse 44, we see that Luke reveals that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I suppose there's a little bit of debate on whether this is real blood or figurative. Um, people oftentimes an argument of it being real blood they'll talk about Luke is a physician it was his wheelhouse this is a medical condition it makes sense now yes that is true but I think when we do that we minimize what Luke is trying to get across here he's trying to emphasize that Jesus is suffering as a man here he's in great agony now whether that was real blood mixed in with this sweat or he's just sweating very profusely does that change that he's in agony does that change that he's in despair that he's suffering no, it doesn't matter if there was blood or actual blood or not. This is about Jesus being in human pain and suffering and still enduring. Luke shows the healing of the servant after his ears removed. Luke 22, verse 51, and he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, if you, let's pretend we're in Jesus' place for a moment. These people are coming to take you away. They're coming to crucify you, to beat you, to mock you, to humiliate you to tear your flesh? Are you going to want to heal this man? 
Are you going to want to take the time to even feel compassion for this man? Now, he's not the one that directly did it, but he's partly responsible. Would we show grace for an enemy in this moment? And for the vast majority of us, that answer is going to be no, but we see that contrast that Jesus did it. And this is how we should aspire to be in our lives. Luke, I feel like, de-emphasizes the order of events a little bit for his purpose. And following when he's taken away, he's led before the council. Matthew and Mark reveal he's tried before the council, and he, then he's beaten and mocked and humiliated. But Luke shows that when he gets to the council, he's beaten and mocked and then tried later. Now, I believe that fits more into Matthew and Mark's to reveal where it is because when you think about Matthew and Mark's purpose, it was about stacking wrongdoing after wrongdoing after humiliation after humiliation on Jesus during his suffering. For Luke's purpose, since he's not focused on revealing anything to a people, he's just focused on the humanity. He suffered this. He suffered this wrongdoing, and it's wrong for us when we look at this from a human standpoint to see a just man punished in this way. And that's all that Luke is trying to get across. Luke is the only one to show specific accusations of the people when they brought Jesus before Pilate. They tell Pilate, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, why would, they include, why would Luke include this here? Well, let's consider Jesus' reaction. He's silent. He doesn't say a word. When you're, if we're in our, at Jesus' place again, and people are bringing these false accusations against you, what are we going to do? We're going to defend ourselves. We're going to want to fight back. We're going to do everything we can to prove them wrong because we're being treated unjustly we're being treated unfair but Jesus doesn't do that he remains silent and so that contrast versus the way God does things in the flesh versus how we do things in the flesh is put before us once again and we know that Jesus actually reveals in this account that his silence is his acceptance of his hopeless state as a human Luke 22 67 through 68 this is actually when he is before the council if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. So we see that acceptance of his fate and that there's no point in arguing. He can't change anything from a human perspective. Luke is unique in showing that Pilate attempts to pawn Jesus off to Herod. So he learns that Jesus is from Galilee. He knows that Herod is the leader of that region, so he sees an opportunity to not have to deal with this anymore. He sends him off to Herod. Herod is excited to see him. He's heard about him. He's heard of these miracles. And really, he treats Jesus like a street magician. Show me something cool. Show me a miracle. Show me a trick. Something that's going to impress me. But Jesus doesn't do that. Then he begins to question him, and Jesus still doesn't answer, and he still doesn't oblige remain silent, even though after this they begin to show contempt and they begin to robe him out of mockery, not because he was an actual king to them, but because how could this man be a king and not have a robe? So they robe him and send him off back to Pilate. All the while, they find no fault in him. Luke is unique in showing that Pilate offers an alternative. After he returns from Herod, he says, listen, I have not found fault in him. Herod's not found fault in him. So why don't, instead of killing him, why don't we beat him up a little bit and then we'll send him back to you? 
But we know that the people don't accept that. They will accept nothing less than death because they had to be rid of Jesus. That's how much they despised him. Another interesting aspect of Luke's account is whenever Barabbas is mentioned, this is not someone that Pilate chose to put up as an option with Jesus. This was someone that they chose. Luke 23, 18-19, it says, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. This is his introduction here. And then it tells us what he's done. He's a rebel and he's a murderer. And what's interesting here is that he is not offered as a lesser of two evils. The people have thought of someone who's the worst of the worst to take instead of Jesus because they will have nothing to do with this just man. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, so they're like, ooh, let's pick this murderer. That's how much we'll show him that we hate him. We'd rather have a murderer out with us than this man. So we see that unjust treatment as a human. Luke 23, 27-31 shows Jesus comforting a group of people while he's suffering, while he's carrying the cross on his torn flesh, while he's being made to help carry the cross because physically he is unable to bear the load. We see him in verse, 27, or to verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now I showed the complete response. I don't want to, show, I don't want to talk about the meaning of that complete response he gives. I think it's important that Luke is showing in his moments of pain and suffering and agony He's still bringing comfort and he's still concerned about others. Luke is the only one to show Jesus asked forgiveness on the people who killed him. Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Once again, put yourself in Jesus' place. You're on the cross. You've already been humiliated. You're in utter pain and anguish. You can't take anymore. And then he still wants forgiveness. Would we do that? Once again, I think we know that that answer is no. And then the thief repents on the cross, Luke 23, 42 through 43. He requests that Jesus remember him when he goes into his kingdom. And Jesus promises him a place in paradise. On the cross, would we have the compassion for a thief, someone who is suffering that same fate? Would we be able to take the attention off of ourselves long enough to show care for another soul? And we also see the contrast of this just penalty for a thief, for a criminal, being totally wrong for Jesus. And then, as I mentioned, Luke mentions the veil tearing before Jesus actually breathes his last. And I think this speaks more to Matthew and Mark's emphasis. This was offered as evidence that he was proof to the people. But he's not necessarily trying to prove his authenticity in those roles to the Jewish people. He's just trying to show that this happened that he was the Savior to all. It was still important enough for him to mention in his uh, writing, but not in the same place that Matthew and Mark place it. Also, Luke shows a different Old Testament reference on his, in Jesus' final words. Matthew and Mark reference Psalms 22. Luke references Psalms 31, verse 5, which is a different prophecy. It says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now, we compare those two lines, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, Into your hands I commit my spirit. We go from a place of rejection and despair, almost being the context here, to a place of finality, as in, it is done now. I've done what I needed to do, and it's time. And Luke is the only one to show people actually showing remorse. 
Luke 23, 47 through 48, after the centurion recognizes that Jesus is a righteous man, verse 48, and the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. What's interesting here is that phrase, beat their breast, is the same context that it's used when we talk about the Pharisee and the publican. We have the Pharisee and the publican going up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is bragging about himself. He's listing off his accomplishments and saying, I'm thankful I'm not like this publican. But what is the publican doing? He can't even lift up his eyes, and he's beating his chest because of the remorse he feels for his sin. And that's the exact same context that this is being used in. And Luke is the only one to show that, to show the humanity, not only in Jesus, but to appeal in our humanity that there was some recognition of the unjust treatment of Jesus. And then finally, we come to John. John's approach is totally different throughout his writings. And we see in John 13, 1, before the Passover feast, he knew his hour had come. So we see the emphasis on the control that he had in the situation it wasn't about the fear of the people or the multitudes. Now it was time. We see no details of partaking of the Passover at all. Instead, we jump to immediately after. In verse 2, it says, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Now, you may think this is an interesting place to put this, but it's going to make what happens next much more meaningful and much more powerful. But in order for us to understand the full context of what's going on, we need to go back so that we can get a glimpse into Judas's mind here. John 12 reveals that after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha are preparing supper for him. Martha is serving, and Mary begins to take this expensive oil, and she's anointing Jesus' feet with it. She's wiping it off with her hair. Other accounts reveal that it was the disciples who rebuked her. John is the one to specifically mention that it was Judas who rebuked her. And we know what Judas gets in return. He himself is rebuked by Jesus. Now, why does this matter? Let's consider what Luke says. After this event of being with Mary and Martha, we see that Luke mentions after this event that Satan entered the heart of Judas. John is not contradicting that at all. The only thing that's missing from John's account is we don't see the actual meeting that he has with the chief priests and elders of making a plan or taking money. But we do see that Satan has already put it into his heart to betray him. And unfortunately for me, and possibly for you, I think that makes Judas more relatable. Now we do know that, Jesus, that Jude, Judas had a greed problem. John is the only one to reveal that he had been stealing from the money bag the entire time. This wasn't a one-time occurrence. He had been stealing for basically three years. But something has to change in order for you to feel like it's okay to steal from the money bag to think it's okay to trade in the life of the Son of God. And I think this rebuke that Jesus gives him while he was not wrong in doing it, I think it probably humiliated Judas. I think it probably frustrated him, possibly made him angry. And I think we see an act of rebellion and that he finally decides, well, you know what? For you doing this to me, I'll do this to you. Now, I hear often when we talk about Judas that a lot of people believe he thought he was just going to get a quick payday. He would get away with this, Jesus would get away, and he would just get some free money out of the deal. But I think that this suggests that Judas knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's trading in because he's frustrated. He's not in a good place spiritually, and he's acting on that. Now, I think he obviously is not acting rationally. That is not a rational reaction. 
But I think by the remorse that he feels later on, it really dawns on him that how could he have done this thing for what Jesus did to him? And so, in John 13, verse, starting in verse 5 through verse 20, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's already revealed, uh, and John has already revealed in his writing that Jesus is aware of Judas's betrayal that's coming. And then it's after this that he begins to wash their feet. Now, this is backwards anyway. Jesus is the one that's going to suffer. He's the one that's going to take all the sins of the world on his back. He's the one that's going to bleed for them and die for them. He should be being served. But we see he leaves this as an example. In fact, he tells them as much in verse 15, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Jesus being who he is, the son of God, God in the flesh, if he can take his needs and his desires and put them on the back burner to serve, that's what we should be doing. And that's the example he leaves. But when we consider that Judas has already been revealed, that also means in service to an enemy. It's not just service to those closest. He's washing Judas's feet too. He doesn't skip over him. He doesn't say, no, you don't need this because you're a horrible person. He washes his feet too because it's the ultimate act of service for the Son of God. Now, John in his writing does reveal that Judas is shown to be the betrayer specifically, but it's only to John. We see John 13, 23 through 27 John is laying on Jesus' bosom and he asks, who's the one that's going to betray you? Jesus tells, it is who I give this bread to after I've dipped it. So we know that John knew it was Judas, but we still see that misunderstanding that they didn't know it was happening. And I think that's got to be one of the only reasons we don't see people taking action. If they really knew that Jesus was going to die, someone had to have stopped him, right? But we also see control. God's control over situations emphasized once again. I'm probably guilty of talking about all the things that Judas sets in motion, but really, Jesus sets Judas in motion in the first place. At the end of verse 27, what you do, do quickly. He sends Judas off to do this deed. Even knowing what he's going to do and what he's going to set in motion by doing this, he sends him off because it's him that is in control, not man, not anybody else. And we don't have time to cover all the aspects of what happens next, but I'm going to summarize this from the end To the end of John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 16, we see Jesus comforting his disciples. This is totally unique to any of the accounts. He's offering words of comfort. He's offering reminders. He's reminding them of promises that have been made. He's promising them a helper after he's gone, the Holy Spirit. And things and wisdom to hang on to, to find solace in, in their hour of need. This is his hour of need, right? Why is he comforting them? They should be comforting Jesus, but we don't see that. And once again, we see reinforcement in the unity that Jesus and God have. And then John 17, we talk about this passage a lot. Now, I've always assumed Jesus was alone. Just because it's such an intimate prayer, I mean, obviously he's by himself. But we see in the reading that the only thing that changes is once he's done talking to his disciples as he lifts his eyes up to heaven. So this prayer, this very touching prayer that he's praying specifically for them is in their presence in his hour of need. He's saying in this prayer that he doesn't want them to lose hope. This is going to be a difficult time, but please don't lose hope. He doesn't want them to be separated. He wants their joys fulfilled. And he has kept them throughout his whole ministry. He reminds them in that prayer, except for Judas, who betrays him, 
and that he emphasizes that he wants them to be made holy through the truth of God. In his hour of need, he's praying for them. He doesn't request a prayer to be made for him. He's the Son of God about to suffer for all of humanity, and he's praying for those closest to him. And he knows they're going to fall. He knows they're going to falter, and he's still praying for them. Because he knows what's coming for him, but he also knows what's coming for them. John emphasizes that this was Jesus' price to pay alone. In John 18, verse 8, they come to take Jesus. He steps in between his disciples, and he says, Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He takes the, the weight of the cross, the pain of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, all on himself. And we see human egos at play following this. John's the only one to reveal that he's taken to Annas before he's taken to the rest of the council. And we see that if we read, we know that Caiaphas is the one, the current high priest, this is his idea. But he still needs a, a seal of approval from Annas, the former high priest. So we see that tug of war of the human egos against the Son of God being played out here. Jesus' interaction with Pilate is totally different than John. We see they come to him, they bring him to Pilate, and they say, here's the king of the Jews. And he asks, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? So we see that awareness that Jesus has. He's not asking because he's concerned for Jesus. He's asking because he's worried about himself. He doesn't want an uprising. He doesn't want a tumult. He doesn't want revolting. And he doesn't want this man who might be responsible to be the one that perpetrates it. So he's ruling that out at the very beginning, but Jesus sees right through it. Then Jesus continues on and comforts him in a way and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting. So now Pilate doesn't have to worry about that revolt. He doesn't have to worry about that rebellion anymore. But we see a different order in John as well. We see that Pilate offers Barabbas or Jesus. They choose Barabbas. But then Jesus is sent to be scourged. And then after his scourging, he tries to present him back to the people. He's beaten, had his flesh on his back, torn to pieces and shreds. And he comes back and says, behold the man. But they won't have him. They say, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this saying, he was more afraid. Now, why would he be more afraid? It's because he is scared of who he's dealing with. Things have changed. At first, he was just some man that he didn't really have many feelings for. It wasn't going to cause him any problems, so why does it matter? But now, this could possibly be the son of God. So he goes to him and he says, where are you from? But he doesn't answer. And he tries to emphasize, I can have you released or I can have you crucified, so I'd cooperate. But what does Jesus say? You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Emphasizing that unity that he and God have and that authority that he has while here on this earth. But we also understand that this was God's plan and it had to happen and this was him letting that happen. John 19 verse 17 reveals he is not helped with the cross. Once again, emphasizing that this was his debt and his price to pay for the people but we also see he's not totally alone while he's on the cross John 19 26 through 27 Mary and John are at least nearby for a period of time and he looks to her and he says woman behold your son and then he looks to John and he says behold your mother now 
This is touching on the human aspect because Jesus wants His mother taken care of. He's on the cross. He's been humiliated. He's about to die, and He still wants her taken care of. But if we remember that Jesus is God in the flesh and He's the Son of God here, I think this is also a reward for Mary. She's about to have her son taken away from her. And so she is going to be rewarded, in a sense, with someone who would care for her like a son would care for a mother. She's going to be rewarded with someone who will take care of her as a son should take care of a mother. So God is rewarding a servant here. And John is finally the only one to mention the blood and the water pouring out. And he's actually the only one to mention uh, being pierced, having his side pierced. John 19, 32 through 34, we see the centurion and soldiers recognize uh, that he's already dead as they come to break his legs. And they pierce his side. Now, the blood and the water is a sense of finality. When they pierced at an upward angle his side, they pierced the sac, that, the fluid sac around the heart, and they also pierced the heart itself, showing that water from the sac and the blood from the heart pouring out, emphasizing that truly right now at this moment, God in the flesh, his fleshly body was dead. So that kind of wraps up all of the unique details of what's in each book as far as these events are concerned. And hopefully we'll be able to appreciate each gospel's take on the, on the story. But you notice we didn't talk about the methods. We didn't talk about the practices that they had in place at the time during his scourging. We didn't talk about the methods of how they hung people up on the cross. We didn't talk about any of that. But I think we'll, we're still going to be able to take those understandings and applications that are revealed to us in this moment without that picture of the suffering put to us in a more physical sense and still make that death real to us. But I also want us to remember that the inclusion and the exclusion of events from one gospel to another is not discrepancy between the writers. This is about the Holy Spirit trying to show to us a complete portrait of Jesus. Each one paints a different piece of that portrait and only through comparing all of them can we see that entire event. But I do realize in doing this there's the potential that we could minimize the, the event itself. We go through all these unique details and it might make us forget the gravity of the situation. Because we're going to remember that death in, our, in this memorial when I'm done here. And that death needs to be moving to us. It should be moving to us each and every time we read it, no matter where we're reading it. And while the details are important, they have the potential to minimize and to distract us. So what I want to do is reinforce all the things that Jesus did suffer for us before we close out this lesson. He lived on this earth, He suffered on this earth, and He died willingly on this earth for us. In all four accounts, He foreshadows multiple times that He is going to die. And yet He walks purposefully and He walks intentionally to the end on the cross. He was betrayed by someone close, someone He chose. Someone who had been walking with Him for three years and he was rejected and betrayed by him. He was betrayed with a kiss. In the garden, we see Judas kisses him. And this is an act of friendship, an act of closeness. But we see here, based on the context, it's probably an act of vengeance and a, probably an act of retribution just to add to the humiliation that he's going to suffer. He was bound. He was led away. He was beaten. He was mocked. He had Lie after lie after lie after lie piled on him just so the people could get away with it until they finally felt like they had enough 
to be justified in what they were doing. But he sat quietly all the while. He let them tell lie after lie. He let them beat him and mock him and humiliate him over and over because this is what needed to be done and this is what he needed to complete. He was humiliated when people chose a murderer and a rebel over him, further emphasizing the total rejection that the people felt for him and the despise that they held for him. He was scourged, and when we learn about the scourging, it was probably to the point of not being recognized. His back was torn to shreds. He was bleeding profusely. And then following this, he's crowned with a crown of thorns, has it beaten to his head. He's robed. He's mocked. People kneel down in mockery to him, further emphasizing the rejection that he endured for us. He was paraded after this. With the cross on his back, on his back that was torn to shreds, he was paraded through the streets for the people to spit on him, to mock him, and to further humiliate him. We notice, no matter where we're reading it, he was not willingly helped to bear the cross. He was forced to have someone help. No one moved out of compassion to help him bear that weight. They were made to help him because he physically could not bear the weight of that cross after they were done with him. When he's hung between thieves and criminals, people who deserve that death, they can't help but add to the mockery. They can't help but join in and make it just that more uh, painful to him and what he's doing. He was treated with a standard that was well beneath what any human in his position deserves. He did nothing wrong, and yet he took it all willingly, and he was treated with a standard that was horrible. But why did he have to do all this? Now, yes, we know it was because it was God's plan. It had to happen. But from an earthly perspective, the people didn't want him. His own people that he came to save didn't think he was good enough. He didn't fit the mold that they had in their minds. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. And the best way to simplify it is that the creator was not good enough for the creation. But we know that God's plan was perfect. This was only the first part of the plan was for Jesus to suffer and die that on that cross. And then we know he's resurrected. And the second part of that plan is for us to take that example, to come in contact with the blood of Jesus so that we can be found as acceptable in God's sight. It's so that we can be reconciled to God. It's so that we could have a relationship with God. It's so that we could have an intercessor, someone pleading our case for us in our times of needs, in our times of struggle. He did that all for us. He set that in motion all for us. But we also know we have the duty to share the good news and add to the church. We're to take that example, take that memorial, and share the good news with everybody else, what was done for us. Now we're going to remember that death specifically here in just a second when we take of that Lord's Supper. But before we do that, we're going to offer an invitation. In Acts 2, verse 38, or Acts 2 first, Peter is preaching to the people, the actual people responsible for putting Jesus on that cross and murdering him and taking his life. And they ask what can be done and he says repent and confess and be uh, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And that's what we desire for each and every one today. If you haven't come in contact with that blood and you need to be washed and made clean, if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, we can help you with that. We want to do that for for you. And if that's something you need, don't wait. But we also offer this invitation for those who may be having struggles, who maybe need prayers, who need help. 
anything that the church can assist you with. But I do want to implore before we close, if you need to get in contact with someone to talk about Jesus' life, his example, and his sacrifice, and what that should compel us to do, at the very least, you don't have to come forward, but please talk to someone. And you will be put in touch with someone that can help you. So if you have a need, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.